Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we celebrate today. We thank you for those women in our lives that have raised us and have taken care of us and have loved us and have shown who you are to us. I pray that they have a blessed day today. Lord, we thank you uh, that our mothers and grandmothers, they emulate your character, your characteristics. You are love. You are faithfulness. You are sacrifice. And, and Lord, any, any, anything that our mothers or grandmothers could be, it's first started with you. You are the perfection of all of that. So, Lord, we thank you that you are all of these things and so much more. We thank you for your word, that it, it always remains relevant and cuts us to the quick, no matter what culture or society or time period we're living in. It always connects to our lives. It's always meaningful. So, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth today that our lives would be touched, our hearts would be changed, and that we would be a little bit more like you by the end of today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1930, during the Great Depression, a 40-year-old man had an idea. He had served in the U.S. military, but upon his discharge could not hold down a job. In fact, he was fired from numerous jobs until he started cooking chicken and selling this cooked chicken in his living quarters attached to the gas station he worked at. Over the next 10 years, this man perfected his recipe and method for pressure frying chicken and moved into a larger restaurant location to sell it. In the 1950s, however, an interstate was built in his state and took away most of the traffic that was coming to his restaurant. Because of this huge development, this man was forced to close his restaurant and retire. The problem was that he was essentially broke at this point. Concerned that he would not be able to survive on his measly month, monthly pension check, this man would not give up on his perfected chicken recipe. While he slept in his car, he went on a search to find a restaurant who would franchise sell his chicken recipe, giving him a nickel for every piece of chicken sold. Restaurant after restaurant rejected his proposal, but still this man refused to give up. In fact, he was rejected by over 1,000 restaurants before he finally found one who would partner with him. This man was Colonel Har Harland Sanders, right? and his famous Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants number 24,000 around the world today. And the business is worth $8.5 million with $26.2 billion just in sales. Sanders had multiple opportunities and every reason over the course of his life to give up. But Sanders knew he had a good idea. And so he kept persistently and probably annoyingly marketing his proposal for a franchise chicken recipe over a thousand times until he received what he was looking for. In the parable we'll be taking a look at this morning, there's a woman who refuses to give up and persistently and definitely annoyingly keeps going until she receives what she's looking for. We're going to see what Jesus is getting at through this parable and how it should directly impact our lives and how we should pray. 
So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 18. We'll be starting in the verse part of verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 18. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, or you can look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Luke chapter 18, first part of verse 1 we read, Now he was telling them a parable. Now, all that this says is them. That's the only clue that we have here in this specific chapter. So who is Jesus telling this parable to? For that, we have to go all the way back to the middle of, the cha of, of chapter 17 and verse 22. So look at that. What does it say there? Who, who Jesus is talking to there? His disciples. Okay. So in this context, our parable this morning is included in that same audience. Similar to last week's parable... Jesus is giving this parable to those who have given up everything to follow him, his disciples, as opposed to the self-righteous Pharisees. Luke actually gives the point and the purpose of the following parable right at the beginning this time. He doesn't leave much uh, uh, open-ended here. He says, uh, so he, now he is telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That is the entire point and purpose for the following parable that he's about to give. He gives it right up front. So what's this parable to illustrate that point? Because Jesus could have just said what is recorded for us in verse 1 and just left it be. He could have just said, pray at all times and don't lose heart and just left it there. But he chose to tell a story following that to flesh all of that out. And, he, and a, in order for his disciples and us to understand what he means by that in verse 1 a little bit better. So, verse 2, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Sounds very similar to today, unfortunately, doesn't it? Again, similar to last week's parable, Jesus uses a bad example to illustrate a good point. Last week, he used the dishonest manager to depict how much more financially faithful to God his children must be. And this week, the bad example is this unjust judge. So we'll see how the lack of character in this man, this judge, points out and emphasizes the overwhelming character of God. Jesus' disciples would have immediately understood the disobedience of this unjust judge. In the law that God gave Moses, he was very clear about his intention for the judges that they appointed. We read, appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes and all the towns the Lord God is giving you. They must judge the people, what? Fairly. Common, common sense. Let true justice prevail. Why? So you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. One of these reasons why the judges were supposed to be just was so they could stay in the promised land that God was giving to them. The number one truth that Israel's judges had to keep in the forefront of their mind as they heard every case brought before them was to remain just out of fear of God and his discipline of removing Israel from the promised land if its judges did not uphold true justice. As with everything, the first thing this judge was to keep before him at all times was a submission to God's authority and acting as his agent of justice. Furthermore, 
Moses said, At the time I instructed the judges, you must hear the cases of your fellow Israelites and the foreigners living among you. That's the first piece of instruction there. Hear the cases. And then when you hear them, be perfectly fair in your decisions and impartial in your judgments. Hear the cases of those who are poor as well as those who are rich. Keep that in mind. That's instruction directly from God through Moses to these judges. Hear the cases of those who are poor as well as those who are rich. Don't be afraid of anyone's anger for the decision you make is God's decision. Again, there was to be an unbroken connection between an appointed judge in Israel and God. They were not to make any rogue decisions or act on their own authority without being completely reliant upon God's leading. This then flowed into them hearing all the cases that were brought before them. Remember, hear the cases of everyone, those who are poor and rich. Not only were they to be impartial in their decisions, but they were to even be impartial in which cases they chose to hear. Didn't matter who it was. They were to hear the cases of those who were in the lowest socioeconomic statuses as well as the higher ones. Didn't matter who you were, your case was to be heard by a judge that was appointed in Israel. And lastly, as God's agents of justice, whose rights were these judges supposed to defend the most? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. And fight for the rights of widows. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And so therefore, help God to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors, not them, their oppressors. The judges that were appointed in cities in Israel were to embody these qualities and implement that same justice along those same lines. Judges were agents of God's justice. And so they must defend the rights of the oppressed, the rights of the poor, and especially the widows of that time period. Why did God spend so much time on saying, defend the rights of widows? Well, widows were some of the most oppressed people in that time period and culture because they often had no means of provision or support. So they were at a very high risk of people taking advantage of them. So on one hand, knowing all of this that Jesus has just established, this judge was the complete opposite of who a judge was supposed to be, right? Instead of being a person who followed God's laws and had a healthy fear of his authority over them and a reliance upon his leading, who defended those most oppressed by society against those seeking to ruin their already difficult lives, this judge in Jesus' parable only did what he wanted. He did not fear God and he had zero respect for his fellow man. That's how Jesus describes him. He has no fear of God and has no respect for his fellow human. This judge only took cases he wanted to take, and most likely only those he thought would better his financial or societal status with no care about what God thought, what he was supposed to do in God's eyes. On top of that, it's not unreasonable to think that he probably took bribes and twisted justice as well. Again, 
Sadly, many people in authority take this judge as, their, as the example for their lives, sadly, and not the antithesis for who they shouldn't be. Now Jesus juxtaposes that with a widow, one of the most oppressed people in that time period. Verse 3, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. Remember who God-fearing judges were supposed to defend the rights of, right? Widows. In this particular case, as one biblical scholar noted, the situation is probably very similar to what the widow during the prophet Elisha's, Elisha's time was facing. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. So, this particular widow in Jesus' parable is probably being threatened by a creditor that she owed money to after the death of her husband, who wanted to take her land from her, or something worse, in payment for that debt. Remember, people in general were to have mercy upon widows not to seek to take advantage of their already difficult situation. But instead, this creditor only cared about himself and not the needs of this impoverished woman. This woman faced losing everything. Apparently, she knew she could have some kind of legal protection in her situation and not have to lose everything, so she kept asking this judge to take her case. But the problem, as we find out in verse 4, is that the judge... Would, would absolutely not take the case. He kept refusing to keep, take the case because he was corrupt. So therefore, the creditor could keep going in his process of taking her land from her or doing something worse. Again, according to one biblical scholar, the big, biggest reason why this judge wouldn't take up her case was probably because she couldn't afford to give him a bribe to do just that. So he kept turning her away. This woman surely was in an impossible situation, wasn't she? She had no one to turn to. She had no one to defend her. But she would not give up. Day after day, she tried to get her case heard by this judge. But day after day, he refused. Why? Because he was still holding out for a bribe. She may have felt like she was going nowhere. She probably didn't see how anything she was doing would make any sort of difference, but she kept going. She kept persisting. Finally, verses 4 through 5, we read this. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man. <laughs> how do you like being so self-aware of yourself? <laughs> I do not fear God nor respect man, yet... Because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. I can't take it anymore. Here's where it gets good. Whereas this woman did not see anything happening with her persistence, her persistence and therefore annoyance to this particular judge was the very thing that changed his mind. That's what the focus of this parable is on. This woman's persistence in the face of the impossible, just like with our opening story. 
Now, this is an open-ended length of time. It just says, after a while. It could have been months. It could have been a lot of months. But this woman did not give up. And eventually, this judge finally relents. Notice what the Bible says. Not because he suddenly had a change of heart, but because he didn't want to have to deal with this woman anymore. It wasn't because he cared about what others thought of him, since he didn't care about his fellow human, and it certainly wasn't because he cared about what God thought about him. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, what's kind of funny about this response is what he says. This woman has worn him out. The funny part is this. That phrase, worn me out, or she will wear me out, was apparently a common cultural phrase during this time that literally means hit me under the eye. Or better worded today, she'll give me a black eye with what she's doing to me. By this point, the judge physically feels like this woman's given him a black eye with how annoying and draining she's been with her persistence. And so out of just sheer fatigue, the judge decides to outright give this woman what she wanted just so she would stop asking him to take up her case. Again, this is one of those parables where Jesus uses an example of a bad person to exemplify how just good and how gracious and merciful God is. That's exactly what Jesus gets at in the following verses, verses 6 through the beginning part of verse 8. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. No, he's not going to make you <laughs> come to him uh, uh, day after day after day after day and only change his mind out of sheer because he's just annoyed at you. See, this judge took this woman's persistence as an annoyance and granted her request just so he could be rid of her. He didn't even hear her case. Do you notice that? He didn't even take up her case. You see, he just said, you know what? Whatever you want, I'm giving it to you. I'm not even going to go through the effort of taking up your case and going through the whole process of going through the case and having to sit down with the creditor and have to bring all these different people into court. No, you know what? I'm just going to give you what you want. I'm so fed up with you, I'm just going to give you what you want. But when God's children cry out to him day and night, he will always listen. And he will grant them justice quickly out of his love for them. The lesson of this has both individual and global ramifications. If you are suffering some kind of injustice right now, cry out to God about it. You do not need to try to fix it yourself. That's what the parable is very clear about. Is the woman trying to go to the creditor and trying to fix it herself? No, she's going to the judge. And so we have to go straight to God. We don't need to try to fix our injustice ourselves. Especially if there is some kind of injustice between you and someone else, if you're trying to fix it yourself, what usually ends up happening? You're probably making it worse. <laughs> In fact, Scripture commands us to never seek revenge for ourselves. True change will only come from a change of heart, which can only be accomplished by who? God. Anything we can do? No. Only God. 
This is true for bigger injustices too. Any true and lasting change in society for justice can only come by way of God intervening and making it so. Any change sought that does not include a reliance on God for that change will always fail. So let's always go straight to the source no matter what the injustice is. It could be a heartbreaking personal experience of injustice such as abuse, marital unfaithfulness, rejection, or loss. Go to God with it. Seek His healing. Seek His movement in giving you justice. Seek His wisdom and how you should personally respond to it. God's Word tells us that if we've repented of our sinfulness and asked for forgiveness for that sin, based on Jesus taking our place on the cross for our sin and rising again to give us new transformed life, we become one of God's children and fulfill His election of us. That gives us a special place in His heart. Especially in connection with today is Mother's Day. What, what parent or parental figure here, if your kid comes to you and is really upset about something, you don't try to help them feel better or try to fix the situation if possible, right? As, as much as we love our kids and those we mentor with the same language of verse 7, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us? Does our Heavenly Father want to help us feel better? And how much more does our Heavenly Father want to bring about justice for us? Sometimes God will use something that's unjust in our lives to teach us more about who he is or to teach us something about life, but will always provide comfort and peace with that. Sometimes it's not about things immediately becoming fair, but it's about what peace God provides in the midst of every situation and how he wants us to grow through it. And never underestimate what God will do to provide us relief in impossible situations. That's why the focus is on us bringing our heartaches and the things that we're frustrated with and think are unfair and unjust up to God all day and all night. The focus is on our reliance upon God in every situation. See, the woman in this parable knew that any hope she had in her impossible situation could only come from this unjust and jerk of a judge. She knew that was her, her only hope. And so she went to him day after day after day after day until he listened to her. With God, we know he always listens to us. But we have to come to the realization that any justice or any good or any provision that will happen can only come from Him. And so we must come to Him in complete reliance on Him every day and every night. God will always be who He is. He will always be faithful to us. He will always be all-powerful. He will always be perfectly loving. He will always be there with a listening ear and will move in our lives. But the point of this parable is for our hearts to change, for our minds to focus on that complete reliance upon God and His plan and what He deems best for our lives. When we allow the Holy Spirit to start transforming our minds and our hearts, we start to see, the th we start to see things the way that God wants us to see them. Our default is to see things the way that the world sees them. That's just 
who we are as fallen humans. It requires God completely transforming the entire way we think to see things the way that he sees them. Paul writes, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But it all begins with God transforming our minds and the entire way we think and the entire way we see the world. And then we will see the way that we'll see things the way that God sees them. And we will know what his will is for our lives. God is just. He is the very definition of what justice is. So as we come to him every day and every night in complete reliance upon him and his plan, and we begin to understand more and more of what his justice really means. What that means is this. Sometimes God will intervene and bring about justice that looked impossible. And sometimes God will transform our minds to see what he's doing in our lives through an unjust experience and how he's redeeming it in our lives now. But either way, God's moving and God's working and God's redeeming. That's God working in just individual circumstances. This connects to the ultimate justice Jesus is getting at here, and that's God's global justice. That's why Jesus ends this parable with this rhetorical question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This isn't, Je- this isn't Jesus questioning whether there will be any believers in him on earth when he returns. Nor is Jesus asking some ignorant question. What he's doing is placing this parable that he just gave in its proper context, and that's God's global justice. See, as one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus is connecting this parable back to what he was talking about in chapter 17. In chapter 17, Jesus is discussing his return for his followers, known by the theological term, the rapture. And what that is, is this. Jesus will partially return without warning at any moment. It could happen five minutes from now. And call up to himself all those who have put their faith and trust in his death and resurrection for their salvation from their sin. Following that event, scripture tells us that there will be a time of unprecedented judgment by God over the entire world known as the Great Tribulation. The Bible tells us that God will pour out his wrath upon the earth for a period of seven years, the number of completion, in just payback for the thousands of years humans have perpetuated evil and injustice. God will not be mocked. He is a God of justice, and I think everybody here wants God to be a God of justice. God will not be mocked. He is a God of justice, and all the evil humanity has sown in this world and have done to each other will be avenged by God himself. Jesus' return for his followers is the first global event that will signal this global justice. And so Jesus' rhetorical question in verse 8 is a call to all of his disciples, both the ones he's talking to in this context and every disciple since, including us, to remain persistently faithful in our prayers until he comes back for us. Paul tells the Thessalonian church, 
always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. You want to know how to go about every day as a follower of Jesus? Right there. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Because that's God's will for us who belong to Christ Jesus. Always be joyful and always be thankful no matter the circumstances. How? How could Paul write this to the church of Thessalonica? How could Paul write this? How? By always praying. By never stopping your praying. Why? What does prayer do? It connects us as finite human beings to Almighty God. That's what prayer does. It puts what we're praying for in the best perspective. God uses it to start transforming the way we think, how we process what we're going through, and how we respond to it. If we're bringing everything up to God, especially the injustices in our lives and towards our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world, we not only lead him to move in those injustices, but we have a better understanding of how God will use those injustices. And all the while, we remember that God will ultimately have his justice over this world one day. And so we must pray without ceasing. Don't give up and don't lose heart. Prayer is us laying our weaknesses and shortcomings and sins at God's feet. And prayer is God's power flowing into us and through us into the lives of those we come in contact with. Prayer is where the finite meets the infinite and vice versa. Because of that, and in connection with justice, prayer is our weapon in spiritual warfare. When we talk about justice, both individual and global, what we're really talking about, what we're really dealing with, is battles with the unseen world. The only way to do any kind of battle with that world is through prayer. Why? Because we do not fight against flesh and blood enemies, brothers and sisters, but we fight against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Don't be distracted against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That is who we're really warring against. That is who we're really battling against. Don't let the world distract you by trying to fit you into some other kind of box. That's not who you are. You are a child of Almighty God, and these are the battles we're really fighting. And the only way to fight these battles is through prayer. And it's not a cause for fear, it's a call to prayer. It's a call to fight those battles with the only weapon we have, and that's prayer. That's why immediately following the Apostle Paul's call to put on the whole armor of God, he then says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. He says that right after he talks about putting on the full armor of God in our battles with the unseen world. Most injustice, most injustice has its source 
in the prince of darkness and his forces. Again, don't let anybody distract you. The only weapon we have as flesh and blood is to fight with prayer, to cry out to God, to right wrongs, to provide relief where needed, and to be victorious, and to do so with persistence and never stopping. Yet what is the one thing the enemy is very successful at time and time again in our lives to get us to stop praying? Because he knows He knows how powerful of a weapon that is, and he knows he's going to be vanquished if we all never stop praying and crying out to God and using that weapon against him. So since we know our only hope is the righteous and just judge, and we know our only weapon is prayer, what are we doing about it, brothers and sisters? What are we doing with it? Are we doing anything about it? Are we doing anything with it? Like Jesus said at the end of this parable, when Jesus returns for us, will he find any of us crying out to him in constant persistence for his intervention and redemption? Or will he only find a bunch of ineffective weaklings who aren't really doing anything, making no impact on the world, and wondering why it doesn't seem like God is doing anything? Since we know that our only source of strength in this world and life is God's power, let us always be in connection with him through prayer. As he transforms our minds to see everything the way he wants us to see it, God will have his ultimate justice one day. In the meantime, while we wait for his return for us, let us fight the evils of this world, originating from the kingdom of darkness with the only weapon at our disposal crying out to the only one who has the power to do anything about it. And he will be moved to mete out his justice the way he sees fit. As with everything else in our lives, our salvation, our peace, our joy, like we talked about last week, our finances, everything starts and ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As Paul tells the Roman church, and this is what we'll close with this morning, never take your own revenge, beloved. Don't try to fix these situations yourself. Leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the Holy Spirit to work. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable and what it teaches us about persistence in our prayers. I pray that if we're weak and we're ineffective in our prayers, I pray that you would light a fire within us, that you would move powerfully within us and within this church to cry out to you with the power of the only weapon we have at our disposal, and that's prayer. Lord, I pray that we would come to you as one, come to you knowing that you are our only source for justice, our only source for hope, knowing that if there's going to be any change in this world, any difference in this world, it's only going to come from you, and knowing that you will ultimately have your justice upon this earth one day, and ultimately you will rule over this earth one day. We thank you for this plan that you have in place, your perfect plan, a plan that will never be thwarted, a plan that will never be uh, taken off track. God, you are always the same. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can always come to you in these prayers.
And I pray all these things in the power of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand.